Hello, this week's feature is an episode swap with Puma Podcast, A Better Normal. A Better Normal is a series by Puma Podcast where thought leaders share their bold vision for the future. A Better Normal's new season features creative entrepreneurs who will share how to make better decisions amid changing times. In this episode, we'll be sharing Thinking Machines Data Science founder Stephanie C. explains how to stay afloat in the vast ocean that is big data. Here's their conversation. I feel like limiting beliefs are incredibly dangerous. They literally hold you back from achieving your full potential uh, and they're unhelpful. The only reason why you hold on to them is that they help you feel comfortable and safe. This is Carl Javier from a podcast. You're listening to A Better Normal. If you've been listening to A Better Normal, you might not be used to hearing my voice. So let me introduce myself. For the last four years, I've been a part of Puma Podcast, and in the depths of the pandemic, I stepped into my current role as the CEO. In that time, I've constantly turned to others to learn and to ask, how do we keep going? How do we drive our organizations forward? How can we make contributions to a better normal? So as I step in as this season's host, I wanted to have and share conversations with leaders and innovators who in their own ways have already helped us shape a better normal. I wanted us, you and me listener, to get a chance to sit down and learn from some of the people that we admire, learn how they think, and let them build our mind frames as we forge forward. At the end of last year, we crossed the threshold in technology. We've had AI in various forms for decades now, but the release of ChatGPT showed how far it has progressed. And already this year, we're feeling the impacts. In this episode, we talked to Stephanie C., founder and CEO of Thinking Machines. Thinking Machines is in the business of building AI and data apps to help people make better decisions with data. Steph is a big thinker. And I love that she's just as comfortable talking tech advancement as she is literature and humanities. I hope that this conversation shows how broad and deep her thinking is and that we take a lot away from it. First, I wanted to ask you about books. Because I did hear in the interview that like that's your that that's sort of the refuge after like big tech dude energy is like to uh, dive into a book. And we grew up in a time where the science fiction we were reading was largely speculative. And now a lot of it is existent, but has been created without the ethical quandaries of the stuff that was in the novels. So that was a weirdly long sentence to say that we're living in a science fiction present. How are you sort of responding to this as someone who has read the science fiction and who sort of, I think, engages with the ethical questions? I I feel like science fiction always is addressing fears of the present through a safer lens, like a distant lens, you know? Remember when zombies got really big? And these guys start thinking about like, why, why, why is that happening? And uh, why is that like more recently a trend? Uh, and I really think it's because we've become like more afraid that reflects. Um, so there was a certain point in time where people were really afraid of like nuclear 
the nuclear end of times. And then there was a point in time where people became really afraid of the societies like we live in and the people around us. Um, I feel like the fear of AI, maybe five years, like all the fiction that's been written in the last like five, 10 years, um, has been more about fear of, fear of, um, they're going to say something slightly controversial. Uh, (laughs) And we can, uh, but I, I really think that the last 10 years worth of movies about like people being afraid of AIs achieving sentience and fighting them has actually been more about fear of the lower class. I really think it's been about fear of like what happens when people who you consider like below you on the social ladder achieve power and what are they going to do to you? You know, you've been bullying them. You've been acting as if you have ultimate authority over their lives. What happens when they push back the next 10 years i think we're going to see now what will science fiction look like when people have like absolute real fears of um being replaced of most jobs being replaced by not just ai but by filipinos and i'm really not joking about this you see the trend the combined trend uh, of remote jobs uh and ai automation um you think we're afraid that we're going to lose bpo jobs americans are terrified that there will be no longer a path to the upper middle class for them because any job that's like a traineeship job will get exported here or moved up into the cloud for GPT-4 to do for them. And that is gonna be wild. I cannot even begin to imagine what that does to a society um, that you must have, you know, 30 years of deep special training in order to have professional skills that are distinguishable from uh, a bot. How do you get started? How does somebody young get started in a career uh, in that kind of world? Because when you're young, you don't have that much yet. You don't have your creative strengths yet. You don't have your unique viewpoint on the world yet. You barely have the skills to get started. So you really don't look very competitive. Think about it that way. You're competing against either an AI or a Filipino. I'm going to pull back because we got into it super fast. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself and introduce Thinking Machines, please. <laughs> um. I'm Steph C. Uh, I'm the CEO and founder of Thinking Machines. Um, We're in the business of building AI and data apps to help people make better decisions with data. And I got a head start in being in the business of science fiction, which now everybody is going to be in the business of science fiction. Nobody knows what's going to happen next. All we can see is this world is changing in front of us faster than most of us can cope. And so absolutely everybody, Carl, is going to be in the business of turning science fiction into reality. And so everybody, welcome on board the train. All right. And, and I guess when you were putting up thinking machines and it was like, I, I mean, I read in the interview, like, you know, let's see if it works. And it seemed like this isn't to diminish any of the work that you did, but the timing was perfect. And so where do you find yourself now? Because if, you know, if when you put it up, you're like, in five years, we'll see where it is. And now you've seen how relevant both big data and AI are. Um, How do you feel about like the space and your move to the Philippines and all that? I don't take offense at all. Timing is everything in life. I've definitely, you know, if you gave me the choice to either be (laughs) 10 times smarter or 10 times luckier, I'm going to take lucky. I'm 100% going to take lucky um, because this is such an interesting time to be alive in the world today. Uh, And I've been incredibly lucky in my short career. When I started, I've always always been interested in um, 
math, large numbers, uh, but in a, an applied way. Um, so very much about applied mathematics, um, interested in business and writing and applied math, even in high school. And I just got really lucky in that when I was uh, in college and being very, very interested in computational statistics, the timing was perfect because as I was graduating uh, and I would took um, and I was uh, in college uh, in California in the States at the time, um, every company around was trying to figure out like, what is data science? What is machine learning? How can we take it in an applied way to technology and digital products? Um, and so I got swept up into that, built a lot of um, super cool uh, data apps, uh, machine learning, um, machine learning products at startups at Google. Uh, and then the timing was perfect for me to come back to the Philippines too. This industry, I don't think it really uh, existed here in 2015. It was very, very early. Um, and I got to be part of that wave that built um, the industry that we see right now, which still is pretty nascent, I'd say. Um, and I feel like I've gotten like really lucky a second time in my career. How many people can say that? Uh, where the last one year's worth of advances in AI has been, like, I find it really hard to explain to people that this is abnormal. This is Absolutely. Even in the history of the, the field of computer science, which is like a pretty dynamic young field in itself, the, the level of movement in large language models, in computer vision, in almost every element um, of, of AI tech in the last year is, is unprecedented. It's like 10 years worth of advances in one year. It's, it's like paradigm shifting advances. It's, um, it's, it, it goes beyond research and, um, with Midjourney first and then ChatGPT and GPT-4, we've really cracked all the way through to the killer consumer app. Like that's crazy. It's like the iPhone moment. In the last five years that I've been building AI apps for companies, um, my team and I have very much focused on um, doing the work of tuning AI models to the unique data sets and unique uh, decision-making needs of people inside of enterprise organizations. And we haven't really done a lot of work directly with consumers because you need to have the, you need to have like a digital product first, and then you embed AI in it. ChatGPT is the first killer app. It's like the iPhone moment where you don't need machine learning or AI to be brought to you through a company that's like embedding that model and the experience that you are getting a true complete direct AI product that you as a customer and an end user can directly like run with out there. Um, and that's unprecedented. That's, I'm going to use the word like life changing and paradigm shifting a lot in this interview because it really is. So I think this is definitely the right time to be talking about uh, AI and how people should be ready to start changing with it in a lot of different ways. So who knows if I'll ever be this lucky again, right? To be in the right time in the right place for two huge moments professionally in the world, that's, that's already more luck, I think, than any one person should have. If I never see another ounce of professional luck again in my life, I'll, I'll be satisfied with what I've got. I love that thinking. And, uh, that, you know, if you get that one moment, that that is enough to power you along, but you're lucky with the second, too. I want to shift this to how we're thinking about AI now. But that brings me to how I have thought about AI in the last like 20 years. So I always view it from how good are the video games that I'm playing? Because you can go back to like the early games when you were interacting with, with you know, the AI programmed characters, they would just get stuck somewhere because they didn't have the proper intelligence to get out of the way or they would run in front of you. And now we've progressed to a point where that is not the case. And in fact, um, when you were saying embedded product, like we don't 
we as a company, we barely even noticed that our Google chats were being summarized by AIs automatically. So so I think that the the progression to this moment is it's hard to fathom. So when you say it's unbelievable, I, I totally agree with you. What are the things that you're hearing that you feel are sort of the missteps in how we want to think about this? Like when people start talking about AI in one direction, where do you want to redirect them when they get panicked or stuff? It's too early to have an opinion. When people start asking for definitive opinions on like, is this going to be good for the Philippines? Is this going to be bad for copywriters? The thing I'm trying to say is don't take that fixed world mindset and bring it to an incredibly dynamic situation. It's all under construction, right? So it's trying to take like swimming pool logic into the ocean. A swimming pool is still, you know exactly how deep it is. No currents and waves. Ocean is completely dynamic. How can you say a wave is going to hit you every three seconds? You don't. You just have to keep an eye on the ocean uh, and know how to ride the waves. But there is a way to not drown in the ocean. I really would tell people that um, rather than trying to look for absolutely definitive statements on AI, what it can't do, what it can do, even what it is, learn how to surf, change your mental paradigm. Look at the world as if you're looking at the ocean. Not thinking that you can completely control the situation and environment around you, but thinking of more, um, how can you position yourself and react, right? And you do know how to keep an eye for uh, a wave that's about to come. And might it be a big one? Might it be a small one? Taking a different mindset to the world, because I can't even tell you, and even people working on cutting edge AI cannot tell you the impact this is going to have on society. We've been talking about the technology that's evolving around us. But what I've heard about thinking machines is that you're actually built atop a strong set of core values that guide your team. Could you talk about those? Yeah. So we we have four core values as a company. And when we hire people, we really test for the presence of at least one or two and the willingness to embrace the others. Because if somebody is super, super skilled but they don't have growth mindset, which is the core value you want to talk about, it doesn't matter how skilled they are. They will be ultimately a drag on the organization and not a good fit for a company that is extremely dynamic, exists in an extremely dynamic industry. And that's also the, I think, biggest differentiator between the people who are going to make it and the people who aren't. Um, so growth mindset is an idea from the psychologist uh, professor and professor called Carol Dweck. Think about it this way. There's fixed mindset and there's growth mindset. Uh, If you have fixed mindset, you think that intelligence is fixed, which is by default, I think, the mindset most people have. You know, even people who are in elementary school. I remember people would try to already classify themselves into, Ayan, matalino yan. Ako popular ako. Diba? And then that's crazy because like, what, a 10-year-old? That's this is this 10-year-old is like the smart one. What happens when that 10-year-old becomes like 18, goes to UP and realizes, wow, all my classmates are smarter than me. So how does that help their self-image? If you don't have growth mindset, you have a fixed mindset that's very destructive to your self-image, um, to realize that you're in a pool where you're no longer uh, the smartest. But if you have growth mindset, 
Uh, growth mindset means you embrace the belief that um, intelligence is malleable, that literally you as a person can continue to learn and grow throughout your whole life. And when you have growth mindset, you're so much more optimistic uh, and so much more enthusiastic about the world. Every time you encounter something new or confusing becomes then a really exciting moment for learning growth and change. So, you know, taking that into an organization, right? Um, having growth mindset for us is embracing a spirit of constant change and using pragmatic tools to help each other by giving each other critical feedback that's oriented towards growth, by thinking about our jobs every day and thinking about, hey, what is something I can improve about this job? By not being afraid um, to stretch and take on new things uh, and try and have a way of failing quickly and failing relatively safely. You know, if you fail and the only price to pay is your ego, I don't think that's a price at all. That's fine. Embrace it. And I think that that mindset is something that has helped us grow and succeed um, as the data science and AI industry in the Philippines went from like, not not very much to at least, I, I think we have a really solid one these days. And every single person in, in Thinking Machines grew with this industry. Where would I have gotten trained, quote unquote, trained data scientists uh, in 2015? There wasn't, there, there, weren't, there weren't people, but there was a lot of raw talent. So a growth mindset is what helps raw talent turn into uh, great professionals and growth mindset is what will help people uh, who are kind of looking at their jobs and starting to get really nervous about uh, AI. Think about where to go next and where to where to run with this, where to where to take it. I agree. Growth mindset is crucial in I think any context, but especially when you want to be at the cutting edge of new fields and having teams that are comfortable with that constant change is ideal. What about the other values? So the other three values are um, build for the future and thinking thinking about that, right, is um, we, we interpret build for the future in a way that's about how do you build for a shared future with TM? How do you build for your own professional future at the same time? Um, how do you figure out it? And it's also about developing judgment, right? When do you do things manually versus when do you invest the time and effort to automate it? Because sometimes it's not worth the time and effort. Sometimes you're like, I only have to do this once a year. All right, I'll just like do it, like spend three hours doing it manually. It's not worth the 18 hours it'll take to automate this task. I feel that as a software company, uh, there is a typical tendency for software people to forget that they need to document things pretty well. Um, and so we really value writing uh, skills and communication skills at TM, and that's a big part of build for the future for us. Uh, and we're always thinking about how do you, you know, how do we disrupt ourselves? How do we keep shifting our business model, keep running experiments with it, and kind of keep pressing forward into like what what are better models for us? What can we uniquely do? Um, so that's the second one. That's really interesting when you said building for the future, and it still feels strongly connected to growth mindset. So embracing change together is really important. What else does TM value? Uh, the third and fourth one are all about people because we're we're a consulting company at the end of the day. We need to work with quite a lot of people to get the job done. And so the, th the third core value for us is about uh, relationships matter. It's not just about building technology that you try to shove at somebody. You really have to try to build to build a really great system that people use. You know, work pretty closely with them to understand who they are, what they're trying to do, get them to adopt it. And, and adoption and change management for technology is incredibly hard. Even when people want to change, there's still like a big, big distance from wanting to change to actually figuring out how to 
doing it and then being able to uh, consistently keep it up over time. I've found that the number one way um, to get people to trust you and to, to go ahead and change is not to keep shoving technology at them or to be smart at them. You have to build a relationship with them. And that's why relationships really uh, matter for us. Um, that's not just for our clients. It's for each other also. We have a very strong network of professionals in TM. Um, I really tell the people who join us that this is uh, this is going to be one of the best professional networks uh, you'll ever have in your life. And we now have a pretty strong a pretty strong alumni community too. Being around for seven years, seven years and a little bit, um, we now have a couple of people who've graduated from TM, gone on to do their PhDs, MBAs, moved to other countries, taken on other jobs in other places. So it's not just networking, but making meaningful connections with people to get on the same level of understanding. So what's TM's fourth and last core value? Trust and accountability. I really do not believe in micromanagement. I also think the technology is a, a creative industry, right? Uh, and in creative industries, you don't get to have people sit somewhere from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. and, you know, you get 20 units of creative work out of Carl if he sits there from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. So my job as a leader is to get kind of almost tickle everybody's best work out of them. Uh, and that requires a level of vulnerability and trust on my end. But that requires a really strong sense of accountability on all sides uh, that people have to commit to wanting to do this, to being accountable for uh, the trust and freedom that they get. We're a full remote company. We're probably going to continue to be a full remote company. Um, I've strongly vetoed any push to do monitoring or like strict timekeeping on our company because I just think it's stupid and it uh, pushes people into uh, really annoying behaviors. Uh, there's this rule in, in metrics where once you start measuring a metric, people start really orienting their behaviors like completely towards that metric. It's a funny fallacy because uh, you're trying to measure something as a key performance indicator, but in the act of measuring it, you're also completely changing people's incentives and behaviors. If you start measuring lines of code written in a day, you're going to get lines of code written in a day, but is that really the outcome you want? So thinking about um, how to set up a creative workplace uh, where people do their best work for me is really about like deeply instilling those principles of trust and accountability. And every time somebody pushes me and says, boss, exactly what output do you expect from me today? I have to like look at them and say, okay, what can you be accountable for today? What is on deck? Like, let's talk about it. And, and I press them pretty hard on what can we produce together? Uh, that's really great work. Uh, and sometimes it makes people uncomfortable at first. Uh, but I noticed the more people embrace this, the more we get like really cool, really wild stuff out of them. Building a great team is crucial, but I think the other half of doing great work is finding clients and partners who actually get what you want to do and align with this. I think a challenge would be that if someone were to work with you, it would most likely mean a drastic shift in the way that they work. So how do you navigate working with maybe old legacy companies or government agencies where change isn't the most natural thing? People only hire us when they want to change. That's what I tell my team. And that's like always true. We, we don't do this for free. People only hire us. They, they put up valuable time and money, hire us because they want to change. Our job is to help turn that desire into reality. Uh, one of my best friends um, has a kid. He's trying to get this kid to eat 
This kid loves fruits, but will not touch, like starts crying every time you bring a vegetable in front of her. And he just like cannot make her eat that vegetable. Uh, and I'm like, dude, she doesn't want to. So you have to figure out how to get her to want to do it first. And, she, and then he's like, who's the parent here? Not me, you. But <laughs> it's always a totally separate conversation. But um, if we assume that people want to change, then you then you really have to dig into their reasons for changing. Uh, now I know I'm talking a little bit more about psychology than I am about um, technology. But I really do think if you want technology adoption, you actually have to understand the, the people side of it uh, or the value proposition. So... When somebody starts working with us, we already know that they want to change. They're willing to put money behind it. Now, why do they want to change? That's actually the first trick. When people hire us, we think we know why. Uh, they want to become more innovative. They want to improve efficiency of something. They want to see if AI can help reduce the need for, for some other SaaS software, you know. Um, but we don't know. And so the first step is to understand what's driving the desire on the end of the customer. Um, and sometimes it feels a little bit like a, uh, it, it's actually a super useful exercise because once you understand what, what they think the value proposition is, then you know exactly what angle they're trying to take on this. So I've been surprised because uh, there's been at least one situation where I realized that one business unit really wanted us on board because they hated a second business unit who they were totally reliant on for all their reporting. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so you're hiring us to help you automate your reports and make them much more data-driven so you can reduce reliance on this internal technology team who treats you very poorly, who answers, who takes like two months to answer any questions you have of them and is very mean and condescending towards you. Okay, got it. But they would never say that, right? They would never, ever, ever say that directly to you. But now that we know that that's a dynamic, then we can we understand how to better be um, really useful partners to them. We're one of the last survivors of the cohort of data companies that started in 2015. Uh, and it's because it's easy to say, be a good partner, figure out why people want to do things, build technology that works for people but it's incredibly hard to consistently do it on a day-to-day -day basis and still make any kind of money at all. Maybe the last thing I'll say on the topic is uh, the Philippines as a technology market is very nascent. It's a high growth market, but a very immature market, which means pros and cons, which means there's a lot of growth potential in the Philippines, but you have to do so much more work here than you would in other countries in trying to convince companies that they need you. Well, I guess one thought I have is how much easier it is to work with technology and to solve tech problems than it is to have to deal with people. You know, like lots of people, I'm thinking particularly engineers, would prefer to just close the door and be alone with their computers. What do you think of that? Well, I agree with them. I would rather work with tech than people, at least when I'm debugging, you know. <laughs> When I'm debugging a program, I can understand what's going on. Often when I'm talking to a person, I just think, wow, you're so unclear. I don't even know what you're trying to tell me. Do you know what you're trying to tell me? I think that a lot of uh, people who are good with people kind of have a mental block around mathematics, then later around software and technology. Uh, and a lot of technology people have a mental block around people. I think that that mental block and those fears prevent people from accessing that other side of themselves and using it to help them do better, right? Um, I meet a lot of PR people who, who just will say things to me like, 
Oh, Steph, you know, you are, you're so good at technology. How bobo ako eh. I was so bad at math as a kid. And now, like, ah, I'll just never understand any of this uh, tech stuff. And I just want to grab them. And I tell them, hoy, that's a very self-limiting belief. I feel like limiting beliefs are incredibly dangerous. They literally hold you back from achieving your full potential. Uh, and they're unhelpful. The only reason why you hold on to them is that they help you feel comfortable and safe. Um, if you are somebody in computer science, a lot of people who work at TM tell me that they find it really scary and uncomfortable to talk to other people. Like scared, they're really scared. Uh, they find it like really unnerving and they're just like, please boss, can I just like not talk? Can I just not show my face? Can I just hide? Uh, so we have to do some training. I'm like, okay, you are allowed to be nervous. You're not allowed to let this be a limiting factor uh, for yourself. Um, so how can you as an engineer think about, ask questions of, and listen to the people who we're building solutions for? Because if you build something and they don't use it or they don't want it, how can, how can we say that whatever we built works, right? It only works in the most narrow definition of working. So teaching people who are kind of afraid of talking to other people how to start listening and like unlocking their own limiting beliefs is also a big part of, uh, I think, the, the TM method. And this is something that I learned through being kind of a crossover person myself. Uh, throughout my career, I've always been at that border because uh, in a room of engineers, I'm usually one of the more vocal ones and in a room of extreme extroverts, I am definitely uh, the nerdiest one. So being kind of at the boundary of these two groups has helped me see where there are, for me, like very bridgeable gaps uh, between them uh, and helping coach and nudge people on both sides of the gap to just like take a little step towards each other. Can you remember maybe the first instance of when you found yourself between the two groups? Did you naturally gravitate towards it? Or was there an intentional step that you took when you decided, hey, I want to engage more on the PR side? When I was in high school, I was so scared of public speaking that I like literally remember holding like a piece of paper. I had to read like a script off of a piece of paper and like my hands were shaking, like literally shaking. So, you know, this is a learned skill for me. This is definitely not natural for me. I would also say I'm not a natural mathematician either. I was just good enough at both to have potential, but I was not a prodigy at either. So I couldn't rest on the idea that I was great. I definitely would have to, gosh, which anime is this from? Genius of hard work. Um, that's, more of, uh, that's more of the school of thought I belong in. My driving push though, is that I look at the world around us uh, and I see that you don't have to be the best in the world to get cool things done and to make the world a little bit better. Or conversely, you just look at other startups in this region worldwide and you look at some of these founders and you're like, that idiot, that idiot can raise $10 million. Damn, if he can raise $10 million, I can raise $10 million. And so, so I think the two sides of the coin, whichever motivates you more, right? Whether a more positive story motivates you more or a more, oh my gosh, like negative uh, motivation motivates you more. Whatever works in terms of motivation, just get your butt like out of your chair and try something. Whether or not you succeed matters less than did you learn from the experience.
So I guess this is where I pull us into some murky waters. And you don't have to answer if you don't want to. But after all our talk of changing the world and progress and all that, I have to ask what do you think about making concrete steps? Like there's a lot of very smart people who think they have solutions. But how do we start moving that forward? There's a lot of people I know who are professionals, uh, very technologically capable, but um, I'd push them to try to get into, you know, we're complaining about our politicians, we're complaining about our civil service. And sometimes I just push them. It's like, what will it take for you to be one of those people making proposals? If they don't want to be the ones who write the policy, can you write the policy and just like, give it to them and convince them to use it? How do we do some of the dirty work getting down to the streets? You know, it's like talking to people and saying like, okay, getting yelled at, which is very uncomfortable. Nobody likes that. But I really think that's part of the democratic process. Being confronted with people who will just never think the way you do, who will never have the same values as you do. But can you convince them to act in a way that you and them agree and align on? Um, that's a lot of incredibly hard work. And it's not just politics. It's it's like civic work. It's nation building work. And it can't be done from an office. It, it can't be done from your work from home office. Uh, it's a lot of work that has to be done. Even talking to your, your kind of like really racist old Tito who keeps, who thinks he's making like these funny jokes, but they're not so funny. So how do you, how do you, you know, how do you uh, maybe not change his mind because I don't think you ever will, but how do you neutralize him and how do you get him to act the way you need him to act? And that's also part of us coming into our, and when I say us, it's really our generation uh, of people coming into our sense of power and strength and ownership and accountability around the decisions being made. Uh, because whether or not we're the ones making these decisions, we will get hit the hardest uh, by them. So, you know, might as well do it. And if we make a mistake, we make a mistake. But at least we're the ones who made the decision and not, uh, not somebody else who made the decision for us. Thanks so much for spending time talking to us, Steph. We know you're doing such huge, important things. So we appreciate your stepping away from that to share your thinking with our listeners. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation. Here's some key thoughts that I know I'll be thinking about. First is, when Steph said you can't use swimming pool thinking in the ocean, that's such a powerful way to frame a challenge, and I love it. Understanding the scale of a problem and understanding the thinking that is needed to try and even confront it. Following on that is growth mindset, which is crucial not just for organizations, but for us as individuals knowing that there is space for us to push beyond what we currently are. And I don't think we have any other choice than to do that now that we're confronted with what AI is. And I'm hard-pressed to think of a last thing because there was just so much in this conversation. But in a world dominated by tech, I was so drawn to the way that Steph thought about values and living as close to our values as we can and letting them define how we do our work. So thank you again to Steph C for all of this. Thanks to you, listener, and to the team behind this episode. Producer Geraldine Pascual, audio editor Carl Dave Sayat, and shout out to Joe Salcedo, who composed the original theme for this season. I've been your host, Carl Javier. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can find Puma Podcast on all the socials or follow me on Twitter and IG. It's at Carl Javier. Carl with the C, super basic. 
If you like this episode, make sure to follow A Better Normal and share it with a friend too. Thank you for listening to A Better Normal's conversation with Thinking Machines Data Science founder Stephanie C. Make sure to follow A Better Normal on your favorite podcast app and listen to the show's newest season where they converse with other creative entrepreneurs.